Good evening, everybody. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we will do chapter 9. And that'll be our passage for tonight. So 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, we will begin... You're going to see that these passages can be very tricky. If you don't understand what Paul's doing and saying, they could be... um, They become arrows aimed at the wrong people. You could use these passages very wrongly. So, improperly. So let's begin in 919, and then we will go back to the beginning and work our way back up to that. So 9 verse 19 is where we will begin. And we read, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. That I might win more of them. Examples. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not myself being under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. And verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now we've been in 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now. And the purpose of this letter that we've been looking at, Paul may have had more than one purpose, but our primary aim as we look at this is 1 verse 10. Back in chapter 1 verse 10, Paul gives us a little situation and what he wants to accomplish in his writing to the, first, uh, to the Corinthian church. He says this in one ten: I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Wouldn't that be nice? And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So essentially what Paul is doing is he is looking at this Corinthian church and he's saying, I want oneness from you. I don't want any more division or disagreement or separate ideas and missions. I want you guys to come together in oneness. And this is vitally important in a pagan society where you have not one God, but multiple gods. And all these gods have their own little realms of control and their own missions and agendas. And many times in the mythologies, the gods are actually at odds with one another and, and fighting and bickering with one another. And Paul's saying, if we are living like that, we're reflecting a pagan deity. I'm asking us to become one as Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, let them be one as you and I are one. If we indeed believe in one God, then we must become a one people that reflect this one God. And that's what Paul's urging them to, is that the beauty and power of the gospel is that people from all ranks of the social scale and all ethnicities of the global national backdrop, they come together And they don't divide themselves according to, well, the rich hang out here and the poor there. You know, the rich tithers are up in the front and the ones that don't tithe are back there. So congratulations, just kidding. Um, And we have, you know, the different ethnicities, 
Yes, the different nationalities around, um, they are segregated. Like, that's not what Paul is saying. The power of the gospel is that we become one from different backgrounds, different hobbies, and with different interests. And so we've seen this in a number of ways up to this point, and tonight we see this in a very strong way. Um, there's an issue that comes up, and he's saying, hey, oneness, and that's what I'm going to keep pounding into you guys, is oneness, oneness, oneness. So tonight we're looking at one love. There is one love that will bring the church together. Now, one love, but often we try to unite a church under one knowledge. And that's not what Paul wants here. One knowledge is not what we're going for. He wants one love. Now, one love looks like this. We just read it in 119. I'm sorry, 9, verse 19, and 922. So I'm going to recap that again. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win some of them. And then verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. This is what Paul's aiming at. I have become all things for all people, that I might save some. I want you, Corinthians, to get this. This is the one love. One love becomes all things to all people so that they can be sheltered, strengthened, grown up, and saved. All of the above. I want you guys to become all things for all people. Now, this is a, this is a verse that you could just throw out there and say, I'm becoming all things to all people. And we may not even know what this is supposed to look like. like what does that look like? What does it look like to become all things to all people? And you begin to think, okay, so... There are alcoholics in a pub right now. If I'm to become all things to all people, then I must become an alcoholic. Or the prostitutes of the temple in Paul's day. If I'm to become all things to all people, Paul said, to the weak I became weak. So then to the prostitute I become a prostitute. Or to the pagan I become a pagan. And we can right now say, well, what is Paul advocating here? What does he want the church to do? What does it mean to love people and to become like them, to become all things to all people? It's an important question because he's obviously not giving us free license to say, well, yeah, to the prostitute, become a prostitute. Because he just, it wasn't last week, I wasn't gone last week. It was the last time I taught, right? He told him not to go to the prostitutes. So clearly, this can't be part of what he's dealing with. So this is the question that's going to hover over this. And he's actually going to get to the answer of this question. We go back to chapter 8 to get to this answer. But what we're going to see is one love is becoming all things to all people. He wants a one love. One love will bring oneness, not one knowledge. And that's how, actually, knowledge is often the biggest division of the church. We have the people that say, well, we believe in predestination, and you do not. We can therefore not fellowship. We cannot uh, have Bible studies together. So we divide ourselves. Or down the list, you know, we believe in a rapture, and you do not. So therefore, you guys obviously don't understand the Bible, and you're reading it wrong. You don't even, I don't know what Bible you're reading. We're reading the right Bible, so we're not going to have Bible studies together anymore. Like, this is often what knowledge will lead us to. And so if you look with me at 8 verse 1, uh, Paul's going to basically lay this out. I want love over knowledge. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
So this knowledge puffs up, and that's what it does. All of our theological geeks sometimes are the people that are the least uh, cooperative in the church. Because knowledge puffs up, and by puffing up, it's actually separating us sometimes. Now, beliefs are important, but Paul wants to say, look, the oneness is going to come through the act of love. And that's what we're going to be looking at, is what does this mean to become all things to all people? So I'm not asking you guys to have one knowledge. We don't have one knowledge. You know a far different level of knowledge than this person does, and you than this person. The church will never be at one knowledge. We're going to have different levels of understanding. We're going to have different views of things Scripture doesn't clarify. There will never be one knowledge. But there can be one love. And that's what we're aiming for. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. So let's go ahead and dive in to chapter 8. And as you're going to see, uh, it's a very interesting issue. <laughs> it's, uh, it's about vegetarianism and carnivores. <laughs> He says, uh, and now about meat, about the things he wrote to me, you know, meat. So apparently we know that the Corinthians had written Paul previously, and he's writing a response to some of the things they wrote. And one of the things they wrote was this issue of meat, these meat that was sacrificed to idols. And it, it would appear that there is a group of people that have been advocating this letter toward Paul. And these would be the group of people that eat meat. They would see themselves as the strong Christians because we eat meat. I don't know if that's a protein joke or what. And then there's the others. So these people are writing to Paul. Hey, Paul, uh, we know that we can eat meat. We know that meat's okay. Can you tell the other ones to eat meat? And so the other ones are what we're going to see in the passage. They're termed as the weak. So these people are referring to the non-meat eaters as the weak people. They're vegetarians. They're vegans. What are they? Um, It's obviously, though, a lot more than just a dietary preference here that's going on. So... This is what we have, is we have a group of people who see themselves as the elite Christians who have all knowledge because we can eat meat, and these people are weak, and they just don't get it. And if Paul, if only you would tell them right, then they will know that they can eat meat too. Okay, so the so-called strong versus the so-called weak. What is this issue with meat? In these days... You could, you could, as we do today, restaurants, you could go out and get a great bite to eat, and you often would with friends. But some of the best restaurants weren't um, independent buildings over here where they serve food. They did have those, but some of the best restaurants were actually located inside temples. Temples were more than just a quiet place of solitude to sing, hum, and whatever to your God and offer prayers. The temples actually became uh, social centers in which if you had a birthday or you got married or you wanted to celebrate a healing that some God gave to you, all these events were held inside the temples. And there you would bring meat to the temple and the priests would barbecue the meat right there in front of the idol so that the idol is now partaking in the meal with you. And now the people eat of the meat. And so the issue here is that um, the meat they're talking about is meat that is offered to idols inside the temples, some of the higher end restaurants. And so the strong over here are saying, hey, Paul, we really enjoy these fine festivities. We've really enjoyed our status in the social realm. We go to these temples. We have these nice parties. We eat this great barbecue steak. And these people over here say, you guys can't do that. They're offered to idols. That's, 
that's sin. You can't do that. And like, Paul, tell them to shut up because we know idols aren't really gods. We know there's only one God. So Paul, please tell them that that's what's going on here. So Paul's going to address this situation and say, both of you are wrong <laughs> in a sense. Both of you are right in a sense. So let's bring it to the middle here. And Paul is going to answer them. So what you're going to see uh, is three cases brought up by the strong party. You're going to see them. If you have an English standard version, it's going to be in quotations for you. That's the strong people speaking. And Paul's going to respond to that. If you have the New King James Version, I don't think you have quotation marks. So I will quotation them for you so that we can get into the dialogue here. So Paul brings up the topic. Now concerning food offered to idols, meat offered to idols. Uh, We know that, and this is a quote. This is what the strong party says. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Okay, so they're saying we have knowledge. We know that this meat isn't actually, idols are nothing, they're rock, right? So we have knowledge, we can eat this meat, clean conscience. Their argument is that the weak party doesn't have knowledge. That's why they are, their conscience is too, it's almost like their conscience is too sensitive if that meat was anywhere near a pagan temple, I want nothing to do with it. I can't do it. I feel like I'm sinning. And so they're like, if only they'd have knowledge. That's the thing. So they're saying to Paul, we, hey, we all have knowledge. But now Paul's going to answer. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone, verse 2, imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Attacking the strong. <laughs> But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So listen, strong party. Knowledge isn't what rules Christianity. It helps, but it doesn't rule it. It's being known by God and loving God. So he's he's sort of balancing their first argument there. Knowledge isn't necessarily what the weak party needs. Not necessarily. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, so the strong party says, There is no God but one, end quote. Now, Paul, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So Paul here actually concedes, actually, there are gods and lords out there. Uh, As he's going to say in chapter 10, there are demonic entities behind these idols. So Paul's basically going to say, hey, you're right, um, We know that there is no God but one. Yes, there is only one real God. But hold on a second, strong party. Don't excuse yourselves thinking this whole idolatry business is going to not affect you somehow because there are powers at work here. You're not necessarily clean to just go dabble in paganism again. Okay? You're You're not necessarily off the hook here. So you're right, but you're also a little too extreme. So verse six. Yet for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Hmm. The strong said, we all have knowledge. Paul's like, "Mm, we don't all have knowledge. Not all of us are at that place yet. Not all of us has quite grasped the fact. 
Oh, there's one God. If there's one God, then these idols and these temples are nothing but a heap of stone and things that people give power to. Not everybody's come to that conclusion, oh, strong party. The weak party here, they may be just coming out of paganism, entering into Christianity, and man, they still have a very strong pull to their old life. They remember the the emotion of, of a big pagan festival they remember the smell of the meat and the taste and they remember the singing and who knows they may even remember the prostitutes hanging out in the back room in the temple at that celebration and and all these things it's a strong memory it's it's who they were they were raised in this and they're trying to grow out of this and get this out of them and and the strong over here saying oh all they need to do is know something or two and, and paul's like wait a minute these people we need to be protecting them Any little piece of this old life might pull them back in way too powerfully. So not all possess this knowledge, Paul says. But some, verse 7, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See that? He's saying, like, look, they still think that there's something to these deities and you can't just throw meat in front of them and say, oh, yeah, this is off to an idol. No big deal. Like, oh, my goodness, what are you doing to me? They're going to freak out. Now, verse 8. This is the strong party's third case. Verse 8. The ESV doesn't have it in quotes, but many scholars that I read, many of them agree that verse 8 is one of their arguments. So, quote, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In other words, the strong party saying, Paul, Paul, Paul. Food is neutral. Food is neutral. Okay? Food is not going to make me be loved less by God. And eating this isn't going to make me be loved more by God. Neutral. Food doesn't affect my walk with God. Well, they're right. But to those who have the very hypersensitive conscience, the ones they're calling weak, um, food still matters. Now, many people couldn't actually afford to eat meat. The only time you would get meat is if it was at a pagan celebration and the priests were offering whatever was left over. It was the rich. Meat was very expensive. The rich ate meat as a normal meal, but the poor, that might have been the only time at a pagan celebration. Oh, and so, so even if meat was just neutral, just the smell of meat, just the sight of meat, just the taste of meat would bring their mind instantly to pagan connotations. That's the only context they know. So Paul's saying, yes, I know food is a neutral issue, but for some people, because of their past and their experiences, meat may not be a neutral issue for them. So verse nine, but take care, talking to the strong party, take care that this right of yours, this right to eat meat, sacrifice to pagans, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have, quote, knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his conscience, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Well, this is loaded with things right here, okay? First, Paul did not say you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. 
Right there, he sides with them. Okay, you're right. This is a neutral issue. These idols are not really that much of a big deal. Um, you can eat that meat. It's not going to affect your relationship with God whatsoever. But, 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 you got to think about your weaker brother who does see this as a big deal. And will you, by eating this meat, destroy your brother for whom Christ died? Here's, here's the implication behind that question. Are you not willing to change your diet for the person that Jesus was willing to give his life for? That's quite a... Here, change your food. Oh, you can't do that. Jesus, though, goes to the cross. That's pretty minor sacrifice. He's asking the strong to give up. So, verse 12, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. That's Paul's conclusion. Listen, strong party. If you're really that strong, man up and give up your meat. Their argument is, okay, well, let's just grow them up. Let the weak be enlightened a little bit. And Paul's like, mm. Jesus's method, though, he didn't come to earth and say, all right, you sinners, be enlightened. You should know God by now. That's their attitude. But Jesus' attitude was rather he's giving up his rights and he's sacrificing and that's how he brought us to God. And so Paul's asking the strong to do the same. Give up your food. Jesus gave up his life. It's not that difficult. So um, I do need you guys to see though, very important, once again. Nowhere does Paul tell them they can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul agrees with their knowledge. He agrees that this is a neutral issue. But his point is, do not eat this meat in a pagan's temple. He said there in verse 10. Don't do it in the temple. That's where I'm telling you no. Okay, you can, if you want to buy it from the market and go eat it at your house, fine. You guys have that right. But don't eat it in the temple where one of the weaker brothers can see it and possibly be lured away from Christ and back towards the paganism they had been saved from. That's the issue here. The issue is protect the weak who are barely out of paganism from going back to it. Don't be a source of their leaving Christ. That's Paul's issue here. So the issue is not that they want to eat meat. He's fine with that. The issue is where they eat the meat and how they eat it. Make sure it's completely away from the weak. Care for them. So don't show up at church with, hey, this was just offered to Zeus. Let's celebrate. <laughs> um, that's not what Paul wants them to do. Or, nor go down to Zeus's temple and say, uh, oh, hey, to one of the Christians walking by that's barely coming out of paganism. He's like, what? That's one of my church leaders. Well, I should go join him. And then before you know it, the experiences and the emotions, he's drawn back in. He's like, oh, I remember this. This is awesome. And you've lost him. That's, that's what Paul's asking him to keep in mind. Now, in chapter 9, um, it, we appear to go totally off in another direction. But I think you'll see, if we do this properly, that he's actually reinforcing what he just said in chapter 8 with his own personal example. What Paul's going to do is he's going to start talking about his right to be paid as an apostle, his right to take wives along with him or family, um, but he's foregoing those rights. So what he's going to do is he's just told the Corinthians that are eating meat publicly. He just told them very harshly, hey, you're not thinking 
you're not letting the cross filter what you do here. You're living for yourselves. Now he's going to tone it back before he loses them altogether. And he's going to now talk about himself. Hey, I have rights too. It may not be meat. That may not be my thing. But I'm sacrificing those rights. You guys can do it too. That's what he's about to say. Okay? So chapter 9, verse 1. So am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not many, are not uh, you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. I planted this church. You guys should know that. Um, Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right? There you go. Here's your word. The right. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Even Caesar paid his soldiers. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. I mean, unless you don't want it, but no one. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? No. The law says the same thing. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, let the ox eat while it's plowing. That's only fair. It is, for, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Yes. But, verse 10, he's also speaking um, for our sake. It's a question. Does he not also... Speak entirely for our sake. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So look, the ox gets to eat as he plows and so does the farmer. He gets to do all this work and he's expecting food out of it. I get to enjoy the the fruit of this labor. So in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul's argument, hey, I am working and laboring and slaving for you guys. Is it not my right to get food or to get a little accommodation from you? Yes, it's my right. He defended it scripturally and logically. So, nevertheless, middle of verse 12. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Hear what Paul's doing. I have not taken anything from you guys because I don't want to stumble you. Strong, don't eat meat lest you stumble your weaker brother, right? That's what he asked them to do. Um, Paul, hey, I'm not taking money so that I don't stumble anybody. Now, he just said, though, that he has the right to do it. Uh, and obviously, he does. He's, gonna, he's defended that. He's going to even say a little bit more on it. But here's the issue for Paul's context. He's coming into a city. Remember this from way back at the beginning? A, a city known for um, rhetoric or public speaking. This was a city that was obsessed. Okay, we 
American Idol is actually ending. It's having its final season. But for years, American Idol was America's number one TV show. And we were obsessed with voting over the best singer. We love music. We love to have a say in who's the best. Well, public speaking was Corinth's version of American Idol. They would have speakers everywhere. And at the Olympic Games, they would have speaking competitions to see who's the best speaker. And they loved to vote. And they voted by following, by supporting these speakers with money. That's how Corinth rolled. This was what they were into. We do movies and sports and music and concerts, and they do public speaking. And so Paul, in that context, wanted to distinguish himself from one of these pop preachers who's out there just to basically please people and gain followers and gain money and say, I'm not in it for that. I'm preaching the cross of Jesus, which is not a popular message. So obviously I'm not going for popularity and I'm obviously not going for money. This is not what I'm not one of those people. I'm here completely different. So Paul, if he was taking money, it could be viewed that he's like one of these people and he could have stumbled some of the skeptics. But instead, Paul said, I am forgoing that right. I'm sacrificing that right in order to save some more people who might otherwise not be saved by the fact that I'm taking money. Does it make sense? He's distinguishing himself from the pop preachers of his culture. So Paul is saying to these Corinthians, hey, I have rights too, but I am foregoing rights. You should consider it as well. So in verse um, 15, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. So again, he's reiterating, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Okay, so this is getting a little complex. I'm going to walk you through this very simply. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That, I, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge and so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Okay, so Paul's second reason to distinguish myself from pop preachers But his second reason he says here is, I was commanded to preach the gospel. Okay. So most preachers today were called into the ministry. We feel like God's leading us there. We have a passion to do so. Um, But as far as I know, God hasn't literally arrested any of us and forced us to do it. That's how Paul sees his ministry. He was on the Damascus road to persecute Christians. Jesus shows up without his even thinking one thought that Jesus might be true. Jesus shows up and says, Paul, you are now serving me. And it happened like that. Paul never had the negotiation moment. He never pondered. He was like, "Mm, maybe not. Or there was no, God literally showed up and said, Paul, you're mine. And he was his. And you're going to go preach for him. Paul went and preached for him. In Paul's view, He was literally Christ's prisoner. Christ showed up and said, you're a criminal. I'm arresting you. Go and preach the gospel. And Paul's like, okay, I have to go preach the gospel. I have no choice. Necessity, he said, necessity is laid upon me. It's almost like God's got a gun at my head and saying, keep preaching. Paul's like, okay, I am preaching. That's his view of his ministry. And he's saying, if I am taking money for this, that's not any, what's in it for me is that I'm doing this free of charge. Because that's the only thing that I can choose to do. God's making me preach, but of my own will is that I'm going to forego the funds. That's what he's saying there. It's interesting. I hope none of you take this the wrong way, but um, 
in, in one of the youth call classes, there was a year where uh, Calvinism was a big interest and they had these debates in class. And if you don't know what Calvinism is, Calvinism basically believes that God chooses who to save and who not to save. And so um, I, I would always tell them that uh, I'm a situational Calvinist. Um, I don't believe in Calvinism, but in Paul's instance, I do. I make one exception. I feel like God said, I'm going to save you, Paul, whether you want to be saved or not. It's like the one time in history God showed up and said, no choice, unconditional election right here. And he takes Paul. So in any ways, that's at least how Paul seems to talk about his own conversion experience. And I think often we confuse Calvinistic passages with Paul describing the way he viewed his own conversion rather than Paul trying to explain how all Christians get saved. Does that make sense? Uh, So in some ways, it's almost like Paul is like the one exception. And so that's why he's saying this. So anyways, the whole main point, though, don't lose the point. I have rights, but I'm sacrificing them. So Paul's the example of what he wants the Corinthians to do. Okay, that then brings us to verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win some of them. So to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To those in the law, I became as one in the law. To the weak. Oh, wait, we've been talking about that term. To the weak, I became as one who is weak. That's where you read verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So now with the whole story brought up to speed, what does Paul mean when he says, I become all things to all people that I might save some? What does this one love look like? It looks like the strong Corinthians who are salivating for filet mignon or Chick-fil-A or in and out I've lost my train of thought. It, it looks like it looks like them who want okay, this is it. It looks like them who want this food, but saying, for the sake of my brothers, when they can see or when they're around, I'm just going to say, No, it's not worth it. I'll I'll give up this right so that they will not be misled back to paganism. It looks like Paul saying, yes, I could probably make a killing in a city like this that praises public speaking, but I'm going to forego all of my rights for money for the sake of winning some. That's what it means to become all things to all people. It means giving up whatever rights we have that may become a hindrance between us and reaching them. That's becoming all things to all people. It doesn't mean becoming just like them. You're a prostitute. Cool. So teach me how to do this so that I can save you. That's not the idea whatsoever. It's, oh, that's the background you come from, or those are the struggles you have, or that's the part of your weak conscience. Okay, this is what I need to forego or to sacrifice in order that it doesn't get in between us. That's what it means. And so what Paul is saying by becoming all things, all people, he's basically just throwing down the big application of Jesus on the cross and saying, that's what it looks like to become all things, all people. Jesus came and became one of us and went to the cross. The cross wasn't imitating our sin. It was foregoing his own life so that sinners can come and enter into life. It's about sacrifice. It's about giving up what one needs in order to erase and eradicate barriers. That's becoming all things, all people in order that we may win some. And that's what one love looks like. 
the one knowledge of the strong party in Corinth was actually separating people. And they were sort of uh, making a caste system. Weak Christians, you know, they're too legalistic. They say you can't eat meat. Too legalistic. We're going to eat meat over here. You guys can go do your own thing where you don't have meat. But we're going to have meat at every single Lord's Supper we have. That can't be, Paul says. That, no, no, no. See, knowledge puffs up and it separates. But love... Love will give up what it needs to to close that gap. It will become all things. So strong, become like the weak. Okay, at least pretend that this meat affects your conscience too. You know, and remember, he didn't say stop eating it altogether. He just said, don't do it in the temple. Don't do it where you can be seen. So yeah, I'm not asking you to completely change your diet. I'm just asking you to change the way you behave around the weaker brethren. Don't force this upon them. That's one love. It sees that people are more important than our personal rights. It sees that people are more important than meat. So one love is sacrificing rights to save either the lost or to strengthen the weak within our fellowship. That's what one love will do. That's what brings oneness We'll see lost being saved as we sacrifice rights, and we'll see the weak being strengthened as we sacrifice rights. That's the goal here. That's what it means to become all things to all people. As Romans 5, 6 says, you can underline this. You should know where it is <laughs> um, or just jot it down. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the model. So Paul wants the stronger ones, the ones who have less legalism in their walk, the ones who have less sensitive of a conscience. Um, it doesn't mean they're any better, but he just wants them to be more, to be on the proactive side of laying down their lives. If you're really that strong, you can handle this. Take up your cross right now for your brothers. However, this is where this can become dangerous. What Paul is not advocating is that the weak within the church, the, the ones with the sensitive conscience, the ones that have more rules and legalism to their walk because they need it to protect themselves from what they have come out of. What Paul is saying is that they are not to hold the rest of the fellowship in hostage because of their sensitivities. Nowhere does he say this. Nowhere does Paul say, all right, change your entire diet just because there are a few people that squabble about meat in temples. And Paul would never, and we know from other places, he, he advocates freedom and he advocates the church moving forward. He would never say, okay, just because we have a couple of legalistic people here, the whole church has to stop this. That is not his goal here. That would be promoting if he started to say, well, okay, yeah, so there's a couple of people that have problems with meat sacrifice idols. So you know what? No more. You guys, I'm going to go into all your homes. and I'm going to hunt down what's in your cupboards. I'm going to see what you're eating and I'm going to make sure you guys stop. In fact, you know what? So that we eradicate the whole confusion of whether this meat came from a temple or not, or if it was just organic meat, grass fed cow, whatever, like to eradicate those differences. Let's just get rid of meat altogether. Vegans and vegetarians right now. Well, wait a minute, Paul, settle down. This sounds anti-Galatians, doesn't it? 
In Galatians, when Pastor Mike took us through that, we, we read Paul very fiercely saying, the gospel is liberating us from legalism. It's not about the things we do or the things we don't that give us standing before God, but it's about what God has done for us, the way he has sacrificed his rights and surrendered his own life to bring us to him. He became all things to save us. And Paul, so there, Paul logically cannot be saying, okay, whatever the weak want is what the rest of the people have to do. That would be enslaving everyone's freedom to a religion. It would become a, a list of don't do this because someone might be offended or don't do that because you better do this. So what we can't do is run away with this application and say, well, if I do this or that, it might stumble somebody. So I better not altogether. Paul's issue was not give this up because they have scruples or strict standards. That was not his point. Paul's point was, give this up because you're threatening their salvation. That's his point. If you don't give this up, your brother might end up back in paganism. Not, he was not saying, give this up because they're offended that you think a Christian can live that way. Not his point. And you know, right now, if we took a survey, we probably have a wide variety of the way we think a Christian should live or the certain standards, the certain do's and don'ts in this room, would be very diverse. Very diverse. You know, the movies you think you can watch, um, this person may think that that is God-awful. Or the things you eat, or the things you do. Now, of course, there is sin, and sin is sin. But there is also that gray area, right? The liberty. I remember the big thing in high school was Christian music. <laughs> can you listen to non-Christian music? And um, the youth group I attended was very strict. Christian music only. Um, and so there was that, it almost felt like it was a sin to listen to anything that was not Christian, that somehow, um, you know, even if it was clean music, it's not praising God. So it's sinful. Um, you look, some of us may see it that way. That's fine. Some of us may have more Liberty with our music. That's fine too. You go down an endless list of examples. Paul's point is not because they're offended by your music choice. The whole church needs it. He's going to clean house on music. That's not his point. His point is, if this practice threatens to drag your brother back into the paganism he was delivered from, you must not stumble him with it. So that's why Paul can say, I, I don't care what you do with meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, you're going to even see in chapter 10 down the road, he's going to say, you know what? When you're buying meat in a marketplace, don't even ask where it came from. Just eat it. It doesn't matter. But if it matters to somebody else, just don't do it in front of them or in a place where they can see you. Because they might go back into paganism. That's what he's saying. One love. One love is not sacrificing everything just because someone prefers it. One love is sacrificing those specific issues that could cause a new convert or someone with a sensitive conscience to give up on Christ. One love is giving up those things that might put a barrier between us and unbelievers. It's prioritizing the people over our rights and over eating meat. So here's what I think this passage calls us to do. It's to simply love sacrificially. One love is a sacrificial love. It comes by imitating the cross, not by literal crucifixion, but by the things we give up for the sake of our brothers. 
Do we have a heart for the lost? Are we willing to become all things for them, to give up whatever it takes to, to reach them? Do we have a love for others in our fellowship, to be willing to give up whatever might be hurting their walk with Jesus? That's what he's calling us to. Love sacrificially. Not trying to domineer, not trying to convince people that you see it right and that they need to see it your way. Loving sacrificially. People are more important than meat. Amen?